Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From GPB News, this is Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, guest hosting today for Bill Nygut. Thank you for joining us, and we have a lot to talk about. I'm joined today by our team of journalists and politicos. AJC Editor-in-Chief Kevin Riley, my boss's boss's boss. Hey, Kevin, how are you? Good to be here, Greg. Uh, grizzled AJC veteran James Salzer, another boss of mine. How's it going, James? Good. Uh, Democratic State Rep Terry Nulowitz, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Very busy day for you. And Republican strategist Heath Garrett, thanks for joining us as always. Greg, it's great to be here. So let's get right to it. Um, last night we saw a striking moment from President Donald Trump who banned most travel to Europe for 30 days and took other emergency action to help people who missed some work to still get a paycheck. In the same time frame, we had another string of major developments. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson announced they had coronavirus. The NBA suspended its season, and Georgia officials said the coronavirus count here was up to 31. Kevin, it seems like we're in the middle of a life-altering moment. You know, every time I refreshed my Twitter feed last night, there was some huge, huge development. It, it was just unbelievable. And I'll just confess the NCAA tournament thing hit me very hard. My team, Dayton, is number three in the country, predicted as a possible Final Four team here in Atlanta. I've got a fair amount of money invested in tickets, and it looks like even if they were to get that far, and even if the NCAA does decide to keep playing, and I think that's a big question right now, if the NBA decided not even to play the games, I wonder what kind of uh, pressure the NCAA is going to feel because you're talking about college students and uh, you know, arguably a much greater chance of exposure among those teams. I think it hit home for a lot of people last night when, as much as we've been hearing about coronavirus, when we realized that our sporting events, our travel, our celebrities we've grown up watching, it's starting to, to become kind of feel really real. Isn't It'll be it? interesting to see this weekend um, if they go ahead with the Atlanta United game because that's 50-something thousand fans. I mean, we had the game last week. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's like the, I'm, it's kind of like the last one left. I guess Major League Baseball hasn't canceled. Yeah, opening but, day, the Masters. But, I mean, yeah, but I mean, it's, that's, I mean, it, I don't think there was any, you know, I don't know of any problems last weekend when we had 70,000 people at the stadium. So, uh, it, but, you know, we're a couple of days away from a major sporting event here. Greg, that does uh, bring a question up, and I don't know, you, you may know the answer, Terry may know the answer, others. So there's other states have declared a state of emergency. I mean, um, I, I happen to be most familiar with Ohio's because that's where I was going to go see the games. It, but Georgia has not. And um, I, so what, what are the parameters for that? What does it mean if, if Governor Kemp declares a state of emergency? Can he demand that the Atlanta United game be canceled? Or can he what, – what, what happens in that situation and why do governors do that? Yeah, we, I mean, look, we saw in Washington state the governor there has banned public gatherings of more than a few hundred people. So um, I'm not sure if Georgia law allows that, but we've seen governors in other states take more sweeping actions. Obviously, in Washington state, there's a lot more of an outbreak right. there. And I would argue also that he did declare in a state of emergency in, in without officially declaring it by putting by, – by telling the legislature, you know, with like $100 million in the – of emergency funds, of rainy day funds, to be put into the budget. So he, it's it's um, 
I'm not sure a state of emergency, I mean, often a state of emergency is just declared so that you're eligible for federal funds, right? That's right. Not just federal funds, but all kinds of other federal uh, activity by different agencies uh, that you need to bring in. And I think that's the difference between what's happened in Washington and here. It wouldn't be long after if we have something like what happened in Washington that I think he might, you know, uh, initiate those so that you could get additional resources. But I do know he's, you know, working very close. Governor's working very closely with the White House. Uh, and so I don't think that, you know, kind of short of when does he need to start using these more eminent powers of a governor, uh, and we're not there yet, but it may be, it will be caused by fear and panic, and therefore he needs to do it for either law enforcement or other reasons, uh, or is it going to be driven by the disease itself? That's an interesting point, because and I've, asked the, I've asked the governor this at several of his press conferences, when are you going to call for the state of emergency? And generally how we describe it is it frees up more state resources. And as James mentioned, $100 million for the first time dipping into the emergency rainy day fund for the first time uh, in about a decade is a— is it's a, a great recession, yeah. Is it, yeah, since the great recession. It's a pretty big move. Um, same time, they're trying to balance—I get the sense they're trying to balance um, a, a desire not to spark more panic. Um, but they've also just recently, just last week, at the same moment, almost in the same breath as having a, a coronavirus update, called for a state of emergency south of I-20 for flooding. So it's not like this is a very rare step when they call for states of emergency. And I think a lot of um, agencies and event organizers and, and, and other officials are waiting for cues from the governor about whether to go forward with some major events. Terry, any thoughts? I think that's right. I think that, you know, the governor called this morning. They're going to be having a press conference midday. And I really do anticipate that a lot of the questions that we have regarding state of emergency, regarding guidelines, you know, in Seattle, in Washington, for example, the governor of Washington is giving guidelines on large events, especially within this the immediate area around the Seattle, you know, the Seattle Melcher area. Area. I think at that press conference at noon today, we'll get guidance on events like what's happening at Atlanta Motor Speedway, where you have 100,000 people going to be in one space all together this weekend. I think that those are things we will probably start hearing more about very soon. Doesn't it seem odd, though? Uh, I mean, seriously, if the the NBA and the NCAA, just to start with those two, mm-hmm. have said we're <laughs> we do not want people coming in arenas to see, our, you know, our our event because of the risk. Uh, I mean, you got to believe they know what they're doing. So why would NASCAR go ahead with the thing at Motor Speedway? Yeah. Why would we go ahead with the soccer game? It, it, it's either a risk or it's not, right? Well, they play, you know, they, so the last couple of weeks in Europe and Italy and, and Spain this week, they've, they've played games with no crowds, but uh, a, 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 a winger for um, Real Madrid, Danny Carbajal, said, well, why? If if we're going to have no crowds, why should the players be at risk? And and it's a, which kind of led to them canceling or not canceling, suspending the season. And that's kind of the question: is that like, do you even go to the extent where you risk the student athletes who are playing in these games? Right, right. But I I just don't understand why Georgia would be so different from these other states. I mean, what Heath? What's well, your take sports, on that? And I think look, you know, I think the phrase you're going to hear the most over the next seven to ten days, maybe two weeks, is in an abundance of caution. Right. In times like this, I miss Donald Rumsfeld. Right. I feel like if Donald Rumsfeld were right here right now, he'd say the reason why there's uncertainty is because there's uncertainty. 
right? The, the, the science around this disease itself is continuing to evolve on a daily basis. The AJC, you all reported today, we just got the study out of the field. How long does this live on the surface and what types of surfaces? And so as that's happening, we have the known knowns, we have the known unknowns, Uh-oh. and then we have the unknown <laughs> unknowns. Uh, I think that the NCAA, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that in an abundance of caution, they did something that other people aren't being told to do. The NBA did not cancel until two of their players tested positive, and then they, you know, reacted very quickly. Within an hour or two, canceled the game itself where the player was and all other games indefinitely. Although the Hawks played and finished their game last night. Right, other people did finish the games, and so I think there's uncertainty. Because, you know, know, A, we're in a free society, right? We're different than these other countries. And and B, because as, as the... the developments are evolving. You don't necessarily need to do the same thing in rural Mississippi, right, that you need to do mm-hmm. in the state of Washington where you have a, a, a cluster. And we just received word, by the way, of some more breaking news. Viking and Carnival Cruise Lines have just shut down all operations for about two months um, as, a, as another sign of coronavirus fears. We are getting some mixed messages, though, aren't we, Representative, especially in the Capitol? I mean, House Speaker Ralston says, hey, public, you know, urges the public not to show up. And then across the hall, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan says, you know, we still welcome the public. And that's just one microcosm of the mixed messages we're getting. Right. In the parking deck this morning over at the Capitol, I saw a member of the Senate get out of his car with several young pages that I'm I'm assuming we're going over to the Senate page program. Hmm. I don't know if I would have sent my kids to the Capitol. Again, not and that's because suspended in the House, we should know. The page program is suspended in the House. <clears throat> the invite resolutions, which is what we call when you have someone come to recognize them for being awesome. We'll bring them into the well of the house and we, we officially recognize them for their awesomeness. That's been suspended. Us being able to bring guests onto the floor, that's been suspended. Really, the only people who you are going to see in the House chamber are members of the House of Representatives and essential staff, like the speaker's essential staff who needs to be there, the messengers. The page program is going to be run by thoughts and prayers for these women. I hope they have good insults for their shoes because the the, the ladies who run the page program are going to be the ones bringing messages in and out. I have I I honestly think that if, if the session continues, I anticipate that it's going to get to a point where the only people who are advised to come in the building are going to be members of the General Assembly and absolutely essential staff members, members of the media. I don't you know, again, it's the people's building. It should be an open house, but we also have to take precautions and make sure that everyone is safe. And it's it's going to be interesting to see to see what happens because I don't know if you can really. I had, I had someone say, "Well, the lobbyists are going to freak out if they can't come get us on the ropes." And I said, "You know, I have n- yet to meet a lobbyist who hasn't been able to find me, no matter where I am, no matter what the issue is." Right. And I should clarify real quick: it's Carnival's Princess Cruise Line, not all yeah. Carnival operations. But you you said a key point there, too, because you said if the session continues, uh, we know today is a giant de- big deadline day. We'll talk a lot more about crossover day later. But Terry, your your caucus just took a position this morning urging, um, just a few minutes ago, urging uh, the the more immediate adjournment of, of this session because That's of correct. coronavirus fears. Ta- that talk is a correct. About that. So the conversation really has to do with, again, what if we are suspending these major events, if we are, you know, if, if colleges, you know, Emory University announced the cancellation of their classes, if all of these things are happening, we don't live in a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. And is is can you make a case for continuing? I think that's where we are right now is, is, is continuing worth the risks. And if we can get the supplemental budget passed, you know, the baby budget, fixing the FY 2020 budget, 
and which that supplemental budget now includes the $100 million for coronavirus, basically for COVID-19. Once we get that done today, is there a compelling reason to come back? You know, is the importance of talking about casino legislation, does that supersede the necessity of keeping people, of keeping people safe? The supplemental budget makes, makes sure the state can operate until when? June 30th. June 30th. So you'd have April, May, uh, three months. Correct. Within which to, okay. Correct. And that includes the $100 million um, right. uh, of emergency funding that, that Governor Kemp just kind of shifted over, right, James? Right, right, right. Yeah, they were, they were I mean, they were kind of racing to get a lot of this stuff done for that reason, mm -hmm. because they don't know what lies ahead after today. You know, there are a lot of people, Terry, who would be thinking, yeah, if the legislature just suspended session, nothing bad will happen. You know, I mean, there are, but, but you just wonder, I mean. A lot of size of relief. Yeah. There, yeah, there's a case to, and, and there are also, you know, again, there are things that would be tremendous disappointments because we wouldn't be able to have those conversations. And these are issues that do merit having conversations. But again, is the importance of those conversations greater than the necessity of keeping people safe. You, I think you could, though, I think you would have to suspend because I think under the Constitution, you have to pass a budget for the the, the, the upcoming year. So I don't think you could just say after today, we're done for the year. Right. I right. heard some discussion yesterday that that's where it is, right? Do the supplemental and then spend as little time as possible all together. You don't mm -hmm. even, you can even do virtual committee meetings in theory, right? right? And then come in past the 2021 fiscal appropriations right. and be done. Anything else that didn't get done, you could in theory have a special session, but that also hones in on you would only have a special session for the things that are the greatest priority if there are any right. out there. And right. obviously people can argue about what that is. I guess the fact that it's an election year, I mean, does that play into it? Because you see a lot of bills passing that have kind of broad appeal. We, we know the whole thing about the fight about the income tax versus the budget cuts and all that. How, how big an incentive is that for legislators in an election year to, to get back out on the campaign trail? Things, yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's an election year. And so you do have lawmakers who want to give voice to the priorities that they want to put on their meal pieces, right? Even if they expect these bills to not ever even go anywhere, they want to be able to have the press conferences. They want to be able to have the committee hearings where they can talk about these issues so they can go back home to their districts and say, see what I tried to do. And again, there, there's merit to that, but I also think that everyone does understand the necessity too. You know, and, and so I have some some colleagues in my caucus who, you know, getting home and being – if. I guess one of the big questions is, with adjournment versus suspension, how does that impact fundraising? Because that is a question that I think mm -hmm. is on everyone's mind. There are people with primaries in both parties. I don't think that's – there are a lot of issues about about the session that are nonpartisan, and I think the, the, the desire to be able to get back in the district and raise money is one of those issues. And that's because during the 40-day session, you cannot – if you're a state officer, you cannot, you cannot raise money. You cannot Meaning raise money. if it's suspended, you couldn't raise money, but if it's – that's a good question because and, and you, because if they're if they're suspended, the session is not over with yet. So that's right. I don't know. I mean, I, it's, that's a good, right. it's a really good question. We're in we're in uncharted territory. This is what's so just strangely fascinating about all this is because we're 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 it's it's now starting to trickle down into all aspects of our lives, including politics. And just today, Joe Biden's campaign had an event that we had scheduled with with Mayor Bottoms and and, and former UN Ambassador Andrew Young, and it was going to be at Pascal's restaurant. And after President's speech last night, uh, we get the email saying hey, it's still going on, but now it's a teleconference event. So it's changing right. the way even campaigns in Georgia are being run. Right. Well, look at the fact that at the debate this weekend, there's not going to be. An audience, you or know, a spin room or a media filing center or anything. No, it changes everything. 
it's going to be interesting to watch from a you know political science perspective how that impacts the the dialogue and the the discourse that happens after the event. You know, and same, you can apply that to the sporting events. I heard somebody on Twitter said, well, how about we just have one fan from each team in the stadium to, to bring something, <laughs> something in there. Sneak Maybe Tom could be that well, one fan. And you, know all the, and you know the president and the candidates are all of the age. They are. And that's yes. so interesting, too. I mean, you have, if you look at the makeup of, I mean, the session being the way it is, if you are a, a person who is in the prime of your career, if you are not independently wealthy, if you don't own your own business, even if you do own your own business, it's tough to be down here and, you know, and to give up three months of your life plus all the stuff you have to do in the off season to keep to keep to do your job as a legislator. And so you do have a lot of folks who are of a different generation than I am, a little bit, a little bit older, <laughs> sixty plus. You, there, there is a great deal of that, and you do. I mean, we're normal people. We have people sure. on all range of, you know, we have folks who are immunocompromised. We have people who have people in their homes who are immunocompromised. And so, usually, when we say they're compromised, it's not in the coronavirus context. Right, exactly. Usually, <laughs> compromised doesn't mean immunocompromised. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to hear you say that, Terry. I, I'm going to write about this in my column on Sunday because we've done some things in our newsroom, as as Greg and James know. Uh, in reaction to this. So we, at, we uh, I guess it was Wednesday, right, mm-hmm. decided that we wanted people to work elsewhere rather than gather in the newsroom. Um, and, and it was kind of, you know, I mean, people forget we're, we're regular people too. When word went out about school cancellations, I mean, that's a mini crisis in a newsroom. It really is because you have a lot of parents with kids right. in school. And then we wanted to make sure we didn't find ourselves in a spot where there was an exposure, and then we had to get everybody in the newsroom to voluntarily quarantine for 14 days, which is, I assume, I think still the latest guidance. And all of a sudden, you, don't, you can't send reporters out to get stories. Photographers cannot go out to get uh, photographs and video. So we thought we were better dispersing our staff. And so we, I spent more time on conference calls yesterday uh, because we did everything by conference call or video conference. I was exhausted by the end of the day, but it's creeping into every aspect of people's You would lives. really think, though, the capital would be largely immune because it's been germy for, you know, <laughs> 150 years. Yeah, so. although because this is a new virus, the experts are saying there is no natural immunity to it. That's part of the problem. Whew. And look, there's, there's jokes that, um, you know, at the capital that children – um, are, are more immune to it, so it's they're less likely to get it, and and people have to take soapy showers after walking in the, shower, the capital anyway. So there's all sorts of <laughs> jokes going around there, but like but, but, you know, it's it's it is like a high school under that gold dome, and if oh, one yeah. person gets the flu, half the play, building gets the I flu. I think so. though, the, the, I mean, it may be not as much as it was say ten years ago, but it, there is a, a large percentage of of legislators who are. 60s and 70s. There are a lot of lobbyists who are, uh, you know, that I've know, I've been there 30 years, and I these people looked old to me when I was, you know, 30 right. years ago. Right. So. Strange right. how they've aged, and you have. So, you, I mean, look, you guys are respected members of the community, except for Salzer. And <laughs> people ask you for advice, and 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 they come to you with their concerns. So, what are you telling people? What are you telling your constituents? What are you telling your your coworkers and your employees when they get freaked out about this? Because it's it, Last night was a was a wake up call, I think, for a lot of people who are watching President Trump's address um, that this is going to impact a lot of their lives in a way that they didn't expect. The wake up call for my district, House District 42, which is in, is, is in Smyrna and Marietta, happened on Sunday morning when it was announced that 
passengers who had been quarantined on the cruise ship off mm -hmm. the coast of California would be coming into Dobbins. The second I saw that statement, I thought to myself, well, there goes my Sunday, because I then spent a lot of time trying to get out ahead with the, with, with the facts related to the message that quarantine passengers would be coming there, which is this is what Dobbins does. This is what the 94th Airlift Wing at Dobbins does and has been doing for a very long time. They've had four international missions already this year, is my understanding. We had Ebola patients coming in in, in 14. It's been In critical. fact, you could say they are the best possible people to do this. Absolutely. And they're creating the safest possible situation. Even though it seems a little scary, they, they know exactly what they're doing. Right. The fences that are going up around Dobbins on 41 and Atlanta Road aren't there to keep us safe in Cobb County. It's there to keep our nosy selves from going and looking <laughs> and trying to get a picture of these folks and seeing who's there in quarantine. Right. And they are doing an absolutely wonderful job. But again, that goes to the facts. And this is a scary thing. And I really do believe, and this might be earnest idea idealism, but the only way you can combat fear is with facts. Knowledge is power. And if we have the facts, if we have the knowledge that is that is true, that is presented in a straightforward way by people who we trust, and that's the people who are in this room, right? We are all trusted people in our communities. Then we are then empowering our communities to make the best decisions they can to keep themselves and their families safe. Heath, you're an expert in political communications. What advice do you give politicians right now to kind of send a message that you have to be vigilant but not to maybe go overboard? Well, that's the balance you've got to have. And what we were talking about, that's why I say I, I kind of miss Don Rumsfeld, right? Because in moments like this, you, plain, there aren't that many people who miss him. Well, 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 <laughs> I mean, you know, when you get a popularity. And, and, and again, we, we, you won't, you won't, you won't the tough guys. But what, what was great about him communicating post 9-11 was it was it was frank. It was straight. It was plain talk. He talked in, in complicated, you know, global politics in a way that the average American can understand. Uh, and I think that's what you have to do as a leader in the modern context and political. You have to at, simultaneously in a balancing act keep people calm in, in, rather than in a panic, yet provide information in a transparent but in a clear and concise way. You can be transparent and confusing, right? We see that all the time. The journalists, y'all are all trained to write it as clearly and concisely as possible. And now we have hundreds of scientists who aren't skilled mm -hmm. in the art of political communication running around on every talk show in America. And some of them are saying the exact same thing, but you can't tell it. It's scientific babble, right, to the average American. So uh, our political leaders need to con con condense that down, make it simple talk. And then I do think that we've got to talk about individual responsibility, right? Our nation is founded on the principles of individual liberty and individual responsibility. I think that's what's going to save us at the end of the day, because with information, with facts, if the average American goes around and, does, and takes some responsibility, uh, they will be cautious and we will end up doing the right things over time. And right now we're dealing with these mass closings, these, and, and that's probably not that's an overreaction, right, to, to a fearful situation. But we, we need more plain, clear, concise talk from all of our leaders. Kevin, you're a boss. You know, you, you've got 100 plus employees who, who look to you. What what are you telling folks? Well, I mean, I, I'll repeat in a note that I hope you guys get shortly after the show ends once <laughs> I can hit the send button and get logged on to the Internet. Um, you know, with our with our newsroom, and uh, we always say the same thing. And first and foremost, uh, we tell people to be safe, not to take risks, to make sure that they're comfortable in the situations that they're in, because um, that that's a challenge with a story like this, as 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 we know, right? 
not only are we trying to cover it and therefore we are out there among people and in places where there is there is some risk and, and we need to pay attention to make, making sure that risk is reasonable because we just can't avoid going to certain places. But it's always the same message. I mean, look, there's nothing more important or precious than your health. If one of you guys gets sick, you know, you can't help the newspaper. So, James and Craig, that's my advice to you is take care of yourself. Now, you, t- now you tell me. <laughs> put, don't put yourself in a situation that's at risk. And I would say that's true of all people. I mean, yes. it's a precious thing to be healthy, and we can sometimes take that for granted. And if if we're going to go through a period of great inconvenience or or frustration or, you know, we can't go to a game we want to go to, just try to remember that, you know, that's a small price to pay for ongoing health in a community and personally. Let's get a quick break out of the way. When we come back, we'll talk more about the state's approach to coronavirus. And, of course, crossover day, the marathon day that, we, that, that you guys are about to go plunge right into. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We're back in one minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Greg Bluestein, filling in today for Bill Nygut. And we're joined by Kevin Riley, ed- editor-in-chief of the AJC, James Salzer, grizzled AJC veteran, Republican strategist Heath Garrett, and Democratic state rep Terry Anulowitz. Thank you again for all joining us. So we're diving right back into the, now a little bit deeper into the state's response and their approach. Um, we're getting nightly emails uh, with the latest figures and regular press conferences urging calm while giving updates. Governor Kemp hasn't spared any bad news, and he's, he's, he's been warning that, hey, there's more, there's more tough times to come. At the same time, we're still seeking more information about testing capabilities for the state, about how hospitals are preparing, about how patients are getting care, especially in rural counties. And we're seeing more rural counties with patients. Lee County first, just had its first one um, last night. Charlton County, the southernmost county in Georgia, a county of about 12,000 people whose rural hospital just closed a few years ago, had its first case. And also about what's happening at Dobbins Air, Air Reserve Base, because um, the federal government isn't releasing too many de- details about that either. Terry, I want to start with you. Is the state doing enough or federal authorities doing enough to keep us in the loop about how this response is going? I think, yes. I think that they're giving us the, the, the facts. I don't think we need to, I don't think there's any reason for us to know, you know, exactly, you know, the ages of the people who are quarantined at Dobbins, for example. I don't think there's a reason to be disseminating that information. We have the number of the, the amount of people who are there. We know that they have 151 beds. There's like 140, 142 people who are there right now. And I think that that's I think that's reasonable. I think that's a reasonable amount of information to have. We you know Heath mentioned a moment ago about how you have a lot of scientists and doctors who aren't as as nuanced in the art of political communication. And I think something we have to be careful of as political communicators is is making sure that we can present the science in a way. I think that, that there's there there are two heads to that coin. And so I think that like for me as a communicator, and my background is in is in communications. I'm trying to take what I know to be factual and disseminate that in my district to a way that I think is 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 digestible. So, for example, when we found out about the folks coming into Dobbins this week, I was very 
key to point out the historical context and the and the skill set that is there at Dobbins. I you know I think that the governor deserves credit for putting together a crackerjack task force with Dr. Toomey, with the adjutant general Cardin. That's who I'm in most communications with regarding things at Dobbins. You have he really does have a good group of professionals, and he seems to be deferring to those professionals. And I and I think he deserves credit for that. James, the economic news is going to get tougher. The Dow just opened 7 percent down as of this taping, um, uh, plummeting on the news of, of Trump's travel ban. Um, the state budget writers are, are probably going to have to account for some tougher times coming up. Well, this is, you know, I was talking to a legislator last night about this, that um, while the governor has committed money to, um, to the problem, um, what they're not, what what nobody can know is what the economic impact is going to be, and whether revenue is going to be down. Which I'm guessing it will be for a few months, um, you know, until this blows over. Um, and so, yeah, there'll be it, it. There'll be an economic impact to this, and that's really not accounted for. And I'm wondering if if down the line the governor may have to use a little bit more of the rainy day fund to shore up uh, agencies. Maybe not. But we don't know. It's, a, it's an unknown question. And it's really not something that's being addressed in this discussion of the budget. It hasn't been yet. Now, it may be today, but it hasn't been yet. Kevin, Greg, what, I, yeah. I have a question for you, actually. You're the one who, you know, is with the governor when he, when he gives those figures each night, and then you're trying to add them up and make sure they add up and all that. I mean, what's it, it been like in that situation? I mean, how does he seem confident? Do the people around him have answers to all your questions? He's taking the the sort of media offensive approach, at least in the early early days of this. Um, he went on a blitz. He interviewed with us and with WSB and with uh, GPB. I mean, with GPB on on lawmakers and with a lot of local met, local markets. So he's 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 taken the sort of full on like head on approach to to all this. And uh, one hand saying, "Calm down," you know, it's not we're not ready for panic yet. The other hand saying, "Be vigilant." That was things are starting to change. That you can feel that this is taking on a, a sharper edge right now, um, and so he might have to also change the way he's he's handling this approach. Um, we're getting 10 p.m. you know late, later press releases about the latest figures, and at some point those figures start to be less of a story for us too because they're just going to keep on mounting, right? I mean, they're part of the story, but. The fact that we're now up to you know 31 cases isn't necessarily going to be a story for us anymore when, when we're talking about hundreds of cases yeah. um, down the road from now, like health experts say we will. Um, but it's very – it's going to be it's, – it's, it's the biggest test of his political leadership so far, right? I mean much more so than, than um, legislation that we saw pass last year and, and other crises involving natural disasters. And I think that's the same for – most politicians around the nation is this is such a test for them. Well, I've just sort of noticed though he has stuck with only talking about certain things, right? I didn't hear him talk about like the NCAA thing or anything. Did he talk about that, or did I miss it, or how is that what you're sensing? Is he's got he, he's going to talk about a certain set of things and that's it? Yeah, and he 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 did not he he released a statement about that um, about the NCAA as as well as Mayor Bottoms. Um, but didn't go have a press conference about that. And that will probably come up in, in today's press conference. But um, I think that I think that it's just like we were talking about Sunday and, and, and maybe last night being a wake-up call, I think, I think the, the, the widespread risk of this is becoming a wake-up call to state officials too. I mean, look, President Trump was here Friday and 
what did he say? He said that seems like years seems like ago. Yeah, right? yeah. That was a, that was one of those midnight days for me too. But <laughs> he was here Friday and and was talking about how he wasn't going to cancel political rallies and how how we should remain calm and and this isn't going to be widespread and trying to tamp down fears. And and that you know it seemed like a day later he was already folks were already walking all that back. Um, and now we know that a lot of his rallies are going to end up getting canceled or at least scaled back. Um, so this is affecting, and of course we saw him last night, give a very sober message about how, how great the risk is going to be. And I think it's worth noting, Greg, that our governor, right, governors and presidents are always kind of defined at the end of the day by how they handle these crises at the, and whether or not. And so I think Governor Kemp has gone out on the offensive early on. We have some interesting resources, right? People, we, we don't, we know this and we talk about it, but, you know, Atlanta, Georgia is really in the geopolitical center of a coronavirus pandemic uh, outbreak. We have the busiest airport in the world with direct flights to every country. Uh, that There are hot spots and where there are micro clusters uh, coming through our airport on a daily basis. Uh, we also have the CDC, right? When we think about contagion, whether we think about the movie or we think about the scientific part of pandemic, the people that are involved in that are living and working right over here uh, at the CDC, at Emory, at the University of Georgia, Georgia State. Our institutions have, you know, level four labs to study this. And so Governor Kemp is relying on and getting a lot of information that the president's getting simply because those people and those assets and that intelligence is housed right here. And so that's in one way can be comforting to a leader. And in another way, it's also we're right there on the front lines because of our international business connections. And Andrew Young was in here just the other day. Our connections to all these countries around the world are because of 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 what we do as a state and as a city. Uh, and I think that, you know, he is starting, the tempo's there, right? And that's going to challenge any leader because uh, it's a public health crisis uh, in a pandemic that's growing. Uh, but at the same point in time, you got to work with the private sector. And that's the balancing act that I see him doing right now. Terry? Well, I think when you're talking about tamping down fears, you need to really examine how exactly you're doing that. Are you tamping down fears by doing what I think the president did, which is to diminish the the reality of what this pandemic was going to mean? Are you going to tamp down fears by making sure you are relaying the facts as you have them, but also being straightforward about what you don't know? And I think that the governor is leaning more towards that end of the spectrum. And I think that that's an important thing. And I think part of that goes to what he said also about being in Georgia. So I have a I have siblings all over the country, mm-hmm. and I have um, a brother in in California. He owns two restaurants, so as a small business owner, he is deeply concerned about the economic implications of this. And he's like, "Oh, it's going to be fine. It's like the flu. It's you know everything's good. You know, I don't even know if you can trust what the CDC folks are saying." And I mm. chimed into the big family group chat, which we have <laughs> like eleven people in there, and I said, "Look, here's the thing." that I think I take for granted here in Atlanta, knowing these folks with the CDC, but I need to appreciate why those of you farther afield might not. These are real people working at the CDC. Like my, my kids go to school with these folks. We're playing sports together. You know these people. They go, to, they go to church with you. You're in the same social organizations. I think in Atlanta, we have a better appreciation for the work these folks are doing at the CDC because it is literally in our backyard. And so we are understanding this in a way that I think might not be appreciated if you're out in, you know, out just where you're not having day-to-day contact with the people actually making these decisions and doing this research at the CDC. I also think, though, it points at something that, you know, Heath, I think you've sort of alluded to, which is, and, and, you know, I don't want to make the discussion of coronavirus political. 
but you do have this question of where does personal responsibility begin and end and where does government have a responsibility? Where does it begin and end? And I mean, I think a conservative leader tends to see the responsibility more at the individual level and and a liberal leader seems to see it more at the government level. Witness state of emergency in New York, some of what Governor Cuomo's done up there versus Kemp's approach. And, and I, you know, it's a... It's a tough question right now because a pandemic is hard to predict. I mean, right now, as Greg mentioned, 31 cases. I mean, how do you look at 31 cases and not say, it's really not that bad? I mean, what are we freaking out about? Why did we cancel the Final Four? Meanwhile, you have scientists who are saying, if it's 31 now, it's going to get way, way worse. And you see these projections that we're going to have the same track as Italy and all of this, right, Heath? I mean, no, no I, think, look, I think you've, um, as a political philosophy major, you've absolutely, when, when we look at this, you can see it through the prism of the political philosophy of the two parties, right, at the end of the day. And I think you, you've pretty much articulated it exactly how I would. Uh, there's no question that a conservative leader is going to view it as kind of, okay, it's not just individual responsibility, but how much of it can be done in the private sector, right? And then uh, some of our uh, more left-leaning, liberal, whatever you want to call the, uh, the, the Democratic leader view it as the state has to take a lot of strong action right away immediately and do that. And I, I always like to argue, having worked for Johnny Isaacson for uh, 30 years since I first met James when he wasn't a grizzled veteran, uh, you know, Johnny's approach would be let's, let's get back to it's both, right? It doesn't have to be a mutually exclusive scenario uh, where, where you, in, in, a, in an emergency like this, government, the private sector, community and individuals have to find that balance, but doesn't it? But doesn't it also? It it, it you were talking about the, the the difference in philosophy. It it there are, there are things that will make that will make the other side uh, wake up, or you know, wake up is not the right word, but energize, but, mobilize, but, but yeah, be mm-hmm. suddenly want to do something. And I, I I saw this with this is going back years, but <clears throat> excuse me, with the um, with the criminal justice reform where it was it it the, it was sold as it will save money to do this. And suddenly you had yeah. Republicans on board going, this is a great thing. If the economy, if this, if this does last, and let's hope it doesn't, but if it does last and the economy starts tanking, there, then there's an entirely different perspective because n- neither Republicans nor Democrats are going to accept uh, inaction if the economy's ten- if the economy is just like and I should know, mention particularly too, politically yeah. when a pol- in an election year when when President Trump is going to be running on that and when uh, Governor Kemp's legacy is you know based on and that. I should mention the New York Stock Exchange just halted trading after yeah. they did a good example yeah, of that yesterday there was not a single Republican that I talked to who said that the President of the United States shouldn't be talking about economic stimulus right whereas if it were not in a in an emergency type situation, most Republicans would be going, wait a second, you know, let the markets, let the free market settle this. However, this is an emergency. Adam Smith would say this is an exact opportunity where the government has to step in. That's another area where Governor Kemp's going to need to lead. What are we going to do to continue to, you know, provide economic and regulatory relief so that small businesses and all businesses continue to function? So, Terry, what's the Democratic response? Well, I'll tell you what the Terry response is. The Terry I, don't, response. I don't think that that guidance and and a, a big response from the government is mutually exclusive with personal responsibility. I actually think that if you're getting actual guidance and if you're having facts presented to you from the government, it helps you. Like I, three weeks ago, I went to Costco because I was seeing information that was coming out 
from from what was happening in Asia, from what we knew was. So going to you're the one here. who bought all the Clorox no. wipes. And nope. you're the, the one. toilet paper. I was there weeks ago, <laughs> whistling my way through an empty Costco. I'm like, if I have it, if I need it, and I don't need, you know, if I have it and I don't need it, great, I'll use it eventually. But if I don't have, it, I was like, yeah, they're watching what was happening, and I think that again, you have a lot of leaders all the way up to the presidency who, until just a few days ago, were saying this is like the flu. It's going to magically disappear as soon as the weather heats up. And so people weren't making plans. So now, yeah, you do have runs on the toilet paper aisle at your local Publix because people weren't taking something seriously. They weren't taking that personal responsibility because they weren't receiving that message from their government. So the two are not mutually exclusive. Kevin, what do you want to see from state government? What, 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 what is lacking that you want to see them do? I wouldn't say. I mean, I'm not sure. I I feel that way. I I keep wondering um, I, because I sense a huge conflict between canceling the final four in Atlanta and let's just kind of see what happens and we'll see if the soccer game goes on and if the if the race goes on. To me, that is a very hard thing to justify. And and, and I I always say this. Look. We live in a growing, emerging state that I would argue is one of the most important states in the union. What we do, how we do it, has huge implications for our future, the the lives of our citizens, and actually our stature in this country and our ability to continue to grow economically. If we don't get this right, if we if we respond slowly and we really have developed a reputation for mishandling an important crisis. Uh, it's this is not the same as us, you know, mishandling a snowstorm. I mm -hmm. think you can weather that. I think you can weather a fire that you know where a highway collapses. Although Cleveland never really seemed to weather that river that started on fire. Mm -hmm. So I mean, but if we don't get this right, it, it, I think it could have implications for decades. Ooh, sobering note. Well, I do have to segue to the crossover day marathon day that we are we are facing but first we are going to take a quick break and when we come back we will talk about that marathon legislative day we're back in one minute welcome back to political rewind i'm greg bluestein filling in today for bill Nygut. We're here with Kevin Riley, James Salzer, Heath Garrett, and Terry Nulowitz. Thanks again for joining us. James, we'll start with you because today is that marathon crossover day that, that can go to midnight and beyond. What, what exactly is crossover day? So it, it's, a, it's a date that the House and Senate set um, where hypothetically um, a bill has to cross one of the two chambers for it to be uh, valid um, it's I say hypothetically because there are tons of bills that don't pass that end up being attached to another bill, um, which is called a vehicle. Uh, they catch a ride on a vehicle and they pass later in the session, usually with very little discussion. But that's a whole other issue. Kevin, you're in particular watching a senior care home bill that seems to have been stalled. This is legislation that was prompted by an Atlanta Journal-Constitution investigation. It looked like it had a lot of momentum. Um, today is a big day for that for that bill. Yeah, we'll be watching that closely because um, it, it came out of the House. Um, uh, Representative Cooper, who's chaired that committee and, and really, I think, worked hard on this bill. I, I will tell you, I think she warned us all along that the, the, the industry lobby is a pretty powerful group. But um, I think what we'll be focused on is making sure whatever happens with that bill happens in the clear light of day 
because I just don't see how anyone can look a constituent in the face and not be supportive of protecting elderly people in senior care homes. And, and, and that's what, what that bill is trying to do. And what, what exactly does it do? Well, I think what it does is raise the standards for staffing and training. And, and, and again, I think Representative Cooper was pragmatic. I mean, she didn't try to fix every single thing that our investigation raised, but she argued for progress. Uh, and one of those things, right, is reporting deaths in a senior care home to a coroner. In other words, the senior, you know, the senior medical examiner or or um, government official, so that that's are appropriately noted and investigated if needed. And there seems to be some argument against that, which is to me very hard to fathom. That legislation is up in there. So is gambling. Um, there is a there is talk, at least in the halls of the Capitol, that there could be a, a push to legalize that. That actually, at this there's been a push for years, but that this could be the year at long last that that some form of of gambling is legalized. Terry, what do you think the odds of that are happening? What I'm he- <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. What I'm hearing <laughs> is that. The legislation will talk about it'll be kind of an umbrella and it will talk about casino gambling or resort destination resorts, as I've been hearing them. Right, refer euphemism. To. Yeah. Yes, that is the euphemism. Which is basically a casino. It's a casino. Yeah, it's a big old honking casino, casino with like five swimming pools. Destination yeah. resort, then you will have the paramutual betting, which I think has to do with the ponies. And then you have the sports betting, which has to do with, with the and that's where you have the Braves, the Hawks, the United, and the Falcons. Falcons. Mm-hmm. Sorry. They, they're always lowest on my yeah. list of sports priorities. Oh, first. Here comes the hate mail. <laughs> Headquartered in my district as well. Yeah. So, you, but you have those groups who have who have, who have united together to be be you know be in favor of sports betting. So I think in part because we know anything about the, why the Braves relocated the cop, it's because they had data that showed them that that was the center of their fan base. And I think what the these four teams stand to benefit from with the sports betting, they're not getting any money off of it, but they're going to get a pile of data that they will then have to work with with how they market their teams. Because playing sports is one thing that those teams do, but the marketing juggernauts is a whole, and real estate juggernauts in the case of the Braves. Jerry, is a whole just to be thing. clear, yeah. though, the idea behind the sports betting was it could simply be done with the current setup of the lottery, right? I mean, is... Or has that changed now? After the Supreme Court ruling paved the way for it, right? Right, right. right. That's correct. Yeah, the, the sports betting has opened up. And I think that will be under the auspices of the lottery. And that's one thing I'm not clear on. I need to read the, the substitute that came out of committee yesterday because I haven't gotten the details of that because I'm not sure how things fall with the lottery corporation and with the, this gaming commission that's going to be created. I'm not saying to be correct. Casinos and horses are more complicated. Right. right? I, right. I think that when the Supreme Court made a decision at the federal level, the federal Supreme Court said you can do this. Then the question became, could the attorney general issue an opinion saying that our lottery corporation can then immediately start managing that. And I think that's a much grayer area. Proponents of it are saying, yes, just have the attorney general write a letter and it'll be fine to do that. I don't. I think the lottery corporation board and others are saying, wait a second, we want specific authority before we venture into that. And that, any investor would want that as well. But I think that's right. We've got, remember, we've got three things going on, online betting, which seems to be getting more momentum in the public domain, right? You have fewer people. They don't see the same problems that they do with casinos or with horse racing. And you have much greater corporate support, right, because you have our major franchises out in front on it. You have horse racing and what we call what people call paramutual betting, uh, not quite as viewed negatively in the public's eye as casino gambling. And then casino gambling, it's interesting. I keep hearing that it's you know, there's one group 
that says you're either doing all three at one time and getting approval from the people, or let's pass one, kind of start the momentum of history and build it, and then that would be online betting. Uh, but I keep hearing our casino friends and our uh, horse racing friends say they're going to try to kill anything that doesn't have them tagged on. Right. So yeah, that's the, the let- political environment. Oh, yeah. I see. I see. What, I mean, but, but, but right, casino requires a constitutional amendment. I think, yeah. all, yes, and Absolutely. what I'm talking about is that, yeah, what, what I'm hearing, not what I'm talking about, what I'm hearing is that the, the legislation has all three of those things and that the real, like, where it's really going to come down to brass tacks is when you're talking about the language, for, the, the enabling legislation and the language for that constitutional amendment. All and, being an amendment. And, yep. and what is that going to say? Because it will require an amendment that would need to be voted on in Georgia. So what is that amendment going, how will that be worded? James, you so, talked earlier about how criminal justice initiatives became popular with Republicans as it became viewed as a cost-cutting initiative. Trying to do the same thing with casinos and saying this is an economic development boon. Yeah, but the the, the, the irony of it is, that, I mean, this was going to come out all along. It's been debated now for several years, but um, that it was um, it was sold as we're going to have this committee to look at ways for the state to collect more revenue after Governor Kemp said. Um, we're going to cut spending and that that uh, um, tax collections were down after the 2018 tax cut. And the, the reality is, even if you passed a constitutional amendment and got the stuff up and going, there would be no state revenue for, you know, at least in this fiscal year, if not, you know, another couple fiscal years down the, the, the road. So and, and from what I've heard, the thing is about listening to these debates is, uh, a a uh, idea can go from this is going to raise ten money, million dollars for the state to this is going to raise a billion dollars for the state really quickly, <laughs> like in a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, and so everybody you talk to, based on their viewpoint about whether it's good or bad, has a new number about how much money it's going to raise. And you know we don't, we might as well eliminate the state income tax if you listen to these guys because it 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 I know. Uh, well, yeah, that's a whole other idea. Yeah, yeah that's a whole other Well, we are trying idea. to do that, too. Yeah, and then, <laughs> before we wrap up, I want to get you on that because um, the House backed a plan to cut the state income tax rate for the second time since 2018. And, um, right. Even amid opposition from, from some critics who say that it allows the rich to get richer. Well, I mean, it's it, – it's, first of all, it was, it was you know announced by Speaker Ralston at 1230 on Monday. It w- then went to a committee several hours later where you actually – some people – the i.e. Um, I, the legislators on that committee got to see what was in the bill and then it was passed less than 24 hours later um, or right around 24 hours later so the it was said it republicans cut taxes right, right? it yeah. wasn't really vetted in the in the in the way a, a normal tax bill would and uh, the the two and and i think you know the, the speaker initially said this will you know everyone will get a tax break out of this and the, the, as I was listening to that, I was the going Oprah, like the math. Uh, I, I just don't understand the math of how that works, that everyone would if, in fact, the amount that the state is supposed to lose out of this and the, and the amount that people are supposed to gain um, is way below what you would get if you just lower the rate that much. I, I, I'm sure there is math that will show that. I mean, I, I've seen the fiscal note. but I, So some people, I think, I, I think it's – I know everyone's saying it, but I mean, I think analysts are looking at it and going, yeah, there'll be people paying higher taxes. Well, this will be a debate we will follow uh, the rest of the session because it is moving forward because it already passed the House. Um, that will do it for today's Political Rewind. I'd like to thank our guests. 
uh, AJC Editor-in-Chief Kevin Riley, AJC Grizzled Veteran James Salzer, Republican Strategist Heath Garrett, and Democratic State Representative Terry Uh And thank you for listening. Remember, if you missed any part of the show or if you liked it so much that you want to listen again, you can find it on gpbnews.org or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to catch Lawmakers on GPP TV tonight at 7, and we will talk to you again tomorrow.